is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'll be reading the first um, 13 verses of 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. Okay. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was, when they came, that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance But the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. So Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time that we have as we study your anointed and your anointing and the fact that you don't look at outward appearances, Lord. You look at our hearts. And God, I pray that today that you would change our hearts. That our hearts would be open before you. And that you would use your servant Paul to speak to our very hearts. Lord, this time is your time. So use it for your glory. The words and the lessons that you have um, impressed upon Paul, I pray that you would give him great clarity in, in speaking that and great passion for your word. So again, use this time for your glory, Lord, and use your servant, Paul, for your glory as well. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I hope that you will all uh, come over to the fellowship hall at the end of the service and join us all for pizza. I believe we've got plenty of pizza to go around. So it'd be nice to see you over there. Um, this, I think it's one of these speakers, Sean, is buzzing. Can You can hear it, yeah? Can you hear the speaker buzzing? Is there any way we can get rid of that buzzing? Okay, well, let's replace the cable right now. No, just, okay, we'll, uh, we'll have to put up with it. Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to First uh, Samuel chapter 16, like uh, our reading instructs us. Now, last time we've been looking at Ruth, and at the end of Ruth, this story of um, you know, calamity, really, at the beginning of it. I mean, it seems as though Naomi and Ruth, they have no hope. They have no future, no prospects. It seems as though God has abandoned them. And yet by the end of the story, not only are they blessed and protected and looked after in a way that they could not have dreamt of, but the very... A a sequel of the story is that it's from the marriage of Ruth and Boaz that David comes, the family of Jesse. So um, Jesse is uh, the uh, grandson of Ruth, David the great-grandson of Ruth. And uh, this means it's it's a good segue into this passage, which comes after the reign, a rather inauspicious reign of King Saul. You remember King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he wasn't the best of kings. He wasn't the worst of kings either. The problem with Saul, particularly as Saul as the first king, is that he was the people's choice, but he wasn't God's choice. And as we'll find out today, there's a difference between what we think is the right man and what God thinks is the right man. And we have to make sure that we have that uh, ability to humble ourselves before God uh, who looks on the heart and not just on the outward appearance. The problem with Saul was certainly not in his appearance. He was tall, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He looked really impressive. The problem with Saul was his willfulness, his willful character. Because he was willful, he decided that he was going to do things a certain way, whether God had prescribed it that way or not. And this is why he was not a person He was not a king who could represent God as God's king over God's covenant people. So eventually he was replaced. You find a story of that in 1 Samuel chapter 13 after another failure of Saul. But God had always had his man in his time to come and appoint as king. That king would not be from the tribe of Benjamin as anyone who knew the scriptures 
could know this. We read in uh, Genesis chapter 49, these are some of Jacob's last words, a great prophecy about the different tribes of Israel or or the uh, uh, representatives, of course, of those tribes. And in there's this prophecy about Messiah. Genesis 49 verse 8 says this, Judah, you who are he, are he whom your brothers shall praise, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And as when we looked at this passage earlier, the the idea of Shiloh, it's an untranslated word. It means he to whom it belongs. He to whom it belongs. He to whom what belongs? The scepter, the scepter of the kingdom of Israel. And where's he going to come from? Benjamin? No, he's going to come from Judah. So you see, the people had got it completely wrong because they had not been paying attention to what God was saying in the scriptures. You can't choose a Benjamite to be a king over Israel because God has already said, no, the king is going to come from Judah. And so we get into this story in First Samuel chapter 16. Samuel had some hard work to do. You know, he, he, uh, he, I think he liked Saul, and he was grieving about the fact that God had rejected Saul from being king. And this is where we pick it up. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Saul wasn't dead, by the way, far from it. But he was rejected. Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And remember, that's the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. I have provided myself a king. God doesn't need the people's help. He doesn't need the people's vote. He doesn't need their input. He has all along, in his wisdom, in his providence, in his timing, known David. And the timing is right, and the choice is right. I have provided myself a king. Saul was a people's choice, now God's going to have his choice. God's providence then has moved imperceptibly, hasn't it? From Ruth and that story to the choosing of David now. Where's he chosen from? From the nobles? Is he chosen from, uh, you know, the, 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 the main players in Saul's court? From the people of note? From the nobility? 
Where is he chosen from? Of course, all the nobility were once ignoble, like all the rest of us. We need to remember that. All the blue bloods were just like red bloods, like the rest of us at one time. But, no, he doesn't go to any of them. He goes instead to the great-grandson of the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. This is God's providence. It's been in, uh, at work or in train for all of those generations. This is something we need to understand about God. You know, our lives are characterized by moments, aren't they? And sometimes those moments drag out. Sometimes those moments are unpleasant, and sometimes they're very pleasant. But we leave those moments behind, and we have to move through time, yes? And sometimes we remember those moments we have. Nowadays, we have photographs, and we have films and things that remind us of when we move through those those moments. But because we have lives that are kind of stuck to time in that way, and they only last for a certain amount of time as well, we kind of interpret life and we interpret things in terms of the moments that we pass through and the times that we struggle through and so on. But this is not the way God does things. God works things out in his infinite knowledge through the passage of generations. This means uh, practically for us that if we yield ourselves to God, we are part, a, a willing participant in the providence of God that's ongoing towards the end of the coming of Christ and the setting up of the kingdom which means that our lives, as we move through these moments in dependence upon God, are given over to the service of God and are therefore meaningful and full of worth. They're not empty. They're not pointless. The things that we go through are meaningful. And they have value to God. And God uses them. And God uses them to bring about his purposes. Of course, God can use uh, a life that's not yielded over to him as well for his purposes, but that life does not get rewarded. That life does not see glory. And so we need to understand here, by these words, I have provided myself a king that God had a... uh, a plan that looked over the long haul, not just the short term like the people did. As the story uh, unfurls here, Samuel says, verse 2, How can I go if Saul hears it, he will kill me? Because Saul is reigning as the king, and Samuel, if he goes and anoints somebody else king, what's he doing? In Saul's eyes, he's committing treason. So he's, you know, he's in for the chop, isn't he? Not very good prospect, so a good question to give to God. Okay, well, I'm not, I don't really feel like just going there without having an answer to this question. God gives him wisdom. 
take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. True. Go and sacrifice to the Lord. Then you can do the errand that I send you on while you're doing the sacrifice. You see, this is an example of God giving us wisdom. Now, not in a verbal way like he did with Samuel. That would be nice, I think, sometimes, yes? Like, you know, we're in a jam, we're in a pickle, and we need an answer, and we send a prayer off to God, wanting wisdom, wanting understanding. It would be nice just to get a little voice in inside your head saying, okay, just do this, okay? But that doesn't happen. God does give us wisdom. The book of James tells us about that. Yes, if any man seek wisdom or want wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it to him. But this is an example of the kind of wisdom that God gives. We have to rely upon God, and God will guide us. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel doesn't know anything, but he's got to go to Bethlehem. He's got to choose out the uh, the uh, house of this man, Jesse. And somewhere among the family of Jesse is the one that God wants Samuel to anoint. God's provision always involves faith. God doesn't say, I provided myself a king and it's David just go over there to, to Jesse's house and, and anoint David. He doesn't do that. What he does do, he say, I provided myself a king, and he is at the house of, Je- of Jesse, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. You just have to have the faith to show up there and announce that the anointed one's here somewhere, <laughs> and at some point I'm going to tell you. God wants faith. If God wanted Samuel to act in that way, just on a little bit of information, but enough information for that errand, then that's what he wants from us too. Remember that we walk by faith, not by sight. God doesn't often give us the information that we want ahead of when we need it. And so... Samuel comes to the sons of Jesse in verses 4 and following. Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Because Samuel, you know, he was connected with Saul, and he was connected with battles, and uh, he was a prophet of God, and they feared him. And he said peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was, when they came, that he looked at Eliab. This is obviously the firstborn son of Jesse. And said, said to himself, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel was a spiritual man. Verse 7 tells us that he got it wrong. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. Well, that was a bit of a smackdown, wasn't it? 
Well, I've obeyed you. I've come here and seen this impressive young man here. And he's impressed by what he sees, not only just in his looks, but probably in his deportment and so on. And yet he's saying to himself, surely this is the one who God is going to tell me to anoint. And before he speaks any words, the the voice of God comes to him and says, no, that's not the guy. No, I've refused him. Stop looking at the outward appearance. Stop looking at these things like physical stature. That's what got us into the pickle with Saul in the first place. For the Lord does not see as man sees. We'll see uh, more of this in a minute. But this is an important thing. The Lord does not see as man sees. We think very often that we... The way we think, uh, see things, the way we judge things, that's also the way God's seeing it. But that's often not the case at all. Again, why is that? Well, because we're confined to this moment. We're confined to this space, to our lack of understanding of all of the different intricacies of a situation, all of the, uh, uh, the possible knock-on effects of certain decisions and actions. God knows all of that. And because God has this context, plus he has this inner knowledge of what people are really like, of course his perspective is different than ours. And it's a mistake for us to think that God agrees with us because, you know, we must be right. We've got it right. So Samuel's a spiritual man, but he gets it wrong. What this tells us, what this tells me, is that we must be careful about our so-called powers of discernment. Now, certainly, the book of Hebrews tells us that people uh, who are well, uh, have knowledgeable uh, insight into the Word of God through constant reading and study of the Word of God and also application of that to life, and of course uh, in following God in a life of faith, they do develop a certain level of discernment. Yes? They do that through experience. Uh, they gain that, sometimes imperceptibly. They're not even sure. They, they, they uh, see somebody. There's something about them that just doesn't click, and it turns out that they're right. Just down the road, yes? It's like something about them that's not right. You know what I'm talking about, yes? And I've had many of those instances, and uh, sometimes I've obeyed that gut feeling, and sometimes I've tried to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I've rued that decision, because it so happens that that gut feeling was actually right. But what this is telling us is that we cannot think that our powers of discernment are 100%, are absolutely accurate all the time, because they're not. Samuel was a much more spiritual man than me, and he didn't get it right. So we need to be careful, we need to be humble in our 
understanding of someone. And all of us, I'm sure, have had this, maybe, this gut feeling about somebody, something that we saw in them, something that we saw them do, maybe. We didn't see them at their best, and we've judged them according to that. But down the road, we found out that they're actually not like that. They're actually a person of integrity. They're a person who are solid. I've misjudged people that way, too. For all my ability to discern, I have to confess that I've gotten it wrong. And so the story moves on from verse 7. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance like you just did there, Samuel. But the Lord looks at the heart. Now, um, what he means here by the heart is not just, you know, the emotional side of a person, okay? That's not what the Hebrew word means. When we talk about the heart of it, or when the Bible talks about the heart of a person, it's talking about what I've heard described as their mission control center, the thing that makes them tick, the thing that makes them the person that they are, what they are at their core. So that's going to involve character, integrity, honesty, courage, you know, the virtues, as it were. That's going to involve whether this person is going to be independent of themselves, uh, just relying on themselves and their own judgment, or whether they are going to depend upon God. They're going to be humble before God. All of these different things are involved in this idea of the heart. And these are the things that God sees. What is the quality of this person's heart? God was looking around for this person. How do we know that he was looking around? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 13... And verse 14, when Saul had been rejected by God, Samuel is told by the Lord, or, or rather Saul, Saul is called, told through Samuel by the Lord, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. So Samuel, you're looking at the outward appearance, I'm looking at the heart, and what was the kind of heart that God was looking for in the king? A heart that reminded or reflected the heart of God. Now there's an ingredient, you see, that I'm afraid none of us have the ability to discern. We might be able to discern integrity. We might be able to discern courage and character and industry and ability and imagination. These are all good things. But whether this is a heart like God's heart, that's beyond us. Because there are things there that are imponderables, things that that are not revealed to us, things that we're still discovering about God. 
So God, you see, has sought this person out. That's interesting the way that he speaks about it. I have sought out a person after my own heart. And where is this person to be found? And we'll see in a second. The Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't look at your deeds. God doesn't look at your accomplishments. God doesn't look at your picture of yourself, which is always much nicer and uh, prettier than it really is. God doesn't look at any of that stuff. Oh, look what I've done. God is looking at your heart. What kind of a person are you? Are you humble? Are you willing to obey me? Are you willing to depend upon me? God is looking for faith. And God is looking for things like humility. Well, David had those in trumps. In the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, we get the story of what? David and Goliath. And David's reasoning about facing Goliath was interpreted along the lines of his faith in God, not his faith in himself. He does know that he has certain latent abilities as a shepherd, you know, to chase off bears and, and, uh, and to kill lions. He's certainly a, a brave man. But the crux of the story of, of uh, David and Goliath is who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the Lord? You see? He's zealous for God. He's a man of faith. It's his faith that makes him respond that way. So we know that David is a man of faith. He's also a man of humility. And... Uh, this is brought out in a number of ways. Uh, he was, uh, he had stones and dust thrown upon him when he had to leave uh, Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, had turned against him. And there was this man called Shimei who just hurled insults and hurled also rocks and, <laughs> and dust at him as he was leaving. This is the king. And, of course, his armor bearer says, let me get up there and chop this guy's head off for you. David says, no, leave him alone. Leave him alone. The Lord has sent him. There was another time. This is after David's sin with Bathsheba and, of course, the, the um, murder by secondary causes of um, Uriah. There was a child that came from that union, of course. And David, the child got sick, and David went and he went dust and ashes and he prayed and he fasted for that child. But the child died. And then David anointed himself upon hearing of the death of the child. He anointed himself. And the people were amazed at his response. But David, you see, was humble enough to 
to accept, even though with, with a broken heart, he was humble enough to accept God's decision. And then his faith kicked in. And he says, I shall, you know, I shall not go to him, but, oh, sorry, he shall not come to me, but I shall go to him. He knew the child was safe. Faith, humility, character. This is the heart of David. God looks at the heart. Jesus, many centuries later, said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we need to make sure that our hearts are what God wants them to be. And they can only be what God wants them to be. We can only be the people that God wants us to be in Christ if we take care of our hearts. And that's hard work, isn't it? Isn't it? That is hard work. You know, I, I look around for things to help me because I really struggle. The same as we all struggle in, with our discipleship and following God. And I came across this uh, book on, it's a study of Jacob. It's called Limping with God. Limping with God, Jacob and the Old Testament Guide to Messy Discipleship by Chad Bird. I want to read you some of the preface here. One of the most heartbreaking and liberating revelations that confronts us in our growing up years is that all our heroes are characters in a tragedy. Those to whom we look up in devotion will, without exception, become those whom we look down upon in dismay. I remember as a young man being awed by a leader in our church, his character, his eloquence, the way he truly was a man of God. When I later heard the whispers about his philandering, when the, then the growing volume of the rabid small-town gossip, my heart sank within me. I felt stupid. How could I have been so naive as to look up to him? If I were able to write a letter to the younger me, I would simply say, listen, you're not stupid. You just have yet to plumb the depths of humanity's radical frailty. We have a tendency in church circles to close our eyes to this patent truth. We suppose that the best models of the Christian life are heroes or heroines of the faith. Sunday school material, of course, has mastered the art of inculcating this moralistic ideology with various Old Testament paragons of this or that virtue virtue held up before our children's eyes as the person they should aspire to be. Noah, the obedient, David, the brave. You know the predictable titles. Anyone, even with a passing familiarity of these stories, knows that our children are being lied to. Or, to put it more charitably, half lied to. Biblical stars, like famous people today of every generation, have a large pile of bones rattling around in their closets. And so he picks on Jacob. 
He says here, There is much in Jacob's character, actions, and motives that I find extremely distasteful, which is exactly why I identify so closely with him. That's where we need to be. If if we want the Lord to look at our hearts favorably and size us up to being somebody he can use, we need to understand our own hearts. We need to understand that we're like Jacob. I've already told you, Jacob's my least favorite saint in the whole Bible. I don't like the guy. There's not very much to like about him, yes? But maybe because he reminds me of me too much. Maybe I'm more like him than I want to admit. And maybe if I was honest about that, that would cause a change of heart in me that God would actually say, oh, at least he's getting it now. And so as the story continues, Jesse calls Abinadab in, made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Shammah comes in, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And uh, it says in verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Well, okay. You see, God doesn't make it easy. There's seven sons. And it's a no, 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 no all the way through. Well, Samuel's faith kicks in here. If God has sent me to the right place, which I know he has then there must be what? There must be one more. <laughs> okay. So we ask the question, are all the young men here? Instead of giving up, you see, faith makes him ask that question. Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, he's keeping the sheep. So the one who is going to be The king of Israel and Israel's greatest king is there feeding the sheep and he's not even thought to be brought in by Jesse to meet Samuel. He's not important enough. But he is important enough to God. Do you see? He's the one that God has sought. So he's brought to uh, Samuel and at the end of verse 12 it says and the Lord said arise anoint him for this is the one Samuel he'd have been there for weeks and months and not thought to bring David and anoint David spiritual man that he was he would have been like Jesse and just maybe not even a thought about him This is the one. God's timing, God's choice, God's will. We have to be open to all of these. We can't lean on our own understanding. Remember the proverb? We have to be able to acknowledge God. Remember Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a time and a season. That's 
in our lives too. God has a time and a season, a time and a season to go through uh, good times, a time and a season to go through bad times. And all of this, we need to understand that God has um, an end in view. The end in view here is the choice of David from the sheepfold. The end in view for our lives is going to be different than that, but God has an end in view for us too. In his time, though, not in ours. His way, not our way. His will, not our will. This is where we have to resign ourselves that God knows best, that God looks on our hearts and our hearts have got to be humbled before him. From this line, from this person, David, that's where the dynasty of Israel comes from and that's where the final king, Jesus Christ, king of Israel, king of the world will come from. This little boy, or teenager, in the sheepfold. We've got to admit, none of us would have, would have arrived at that. And so by faith we have to say, God, you know, we, our discernment's not enough. Our ability to know the path ahead of us is not enough. And we have to be able to give ourselves over to God's will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would indeed help us to humble ourselves and help us to look upon our hearts with honesty. We want to be spiritual heroes, but really we're not. And even if we were, it would not be because of anything great in us. Because all of our heroes, even David, have skeletons in the closet. Father, it's by you, it's by your grace that we are what we are. So help us, Lord, to realize that. Because that is good for our hearts. That's good for the spiritual character. It's good for the life of faith. Help us to be those who, when you seek out for the right person at the right time, you look upon us because we've prepared our hearts to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's no final song, so I'm going to close the service uh, with Second Corinthians and uh, chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Father, help us uh, be this way. Help us to be the church and please bless the fellowship and the food uh, over at the fellowship hall. Amen.